In Scripture, he is described as a preacher of righteousness. But we don't have a single word of his sermon. In fact, outside of his family, so far as we know, there's not a single person who heeded his message. And today we would claim that's pretty much a failure because we put so much on numbers. And yet, this is the one that we, some, we often describe as a great hero of faith, and we should. In fact, he's found in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter. He is Noah. He's the one who built the ark. All of our children know that great story. Know it inside and out. He's a man who, when the ark was finished and the waters began to fall, the rain began to fall, only eight people, his family, were on the ark. So was he a failure? I don't think so. In fact, I don't think he was a failure for at least two reasons. One, I don't think he was a failure because he did the will of God. He simply did what God had told him to do. I shouldn't say simply because his task was remarkable. He did what God told him to do. He did the will of God. And he also was not a failure because when the ark was completed, his family was on the ark. That's a different lesson for a different time, but that's a sign of good success. That his family was in that place of safety. The ark was that place of safety. But the water that surrounded that ark did the amazing and the powerful work of God. In Genesis chapter 6 through 8, we read that account of the flood. And most of us, whether we know every last detail or not, we can tell most of the story because we've heard it from childhood. And we know that account very well. And we focus on Noah and his faithfulness. And we should. He's an amazing individual. But it's easy to forget, if we're not careful, the reason behind that global flood. And the reason is very simply this. God will not stand for sin forever. Yes, God is long-suffering. In that passage we read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3, God is even described as patient or long-suffering. That's a wonderful description of God and one for which we need to be very, very thankful. But even though God is patient or long-suffering, He will not abide sin forever. God will punish wickedness when it's necessary And God will also punish wickedness when it's right according to His time, His timing. And if you were to list examples throughout Scripture that show that to be true, you would have to include the account of the global flood, the flood we often call Noah's flood, or the account of Noah's ark. Many centuries later, after the flood had happened, Peter would draw upon that well-known Old Testament account of a world-changing event and then use it to describe an eternity-changing event. He would tell us in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 that eight people or eight persons were brought safely through water. And then he wrote in verse 21 of that chapter, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. This morning I want us to consider the baptism that saves. But instead of just looking at baptism itself, In other words, just that act and walking through the New Testament and finding examples and those sorts of things. I want us to figure out this morning some reasons why Peter would say that baptism in the New Testament corresponds to that Old Testament account of the flood. What is it about the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 that you can see pictured or paralleled in baptism in the New Testament? In fact, most of what we're going to talk about this morning actually comes from Genesis 6 and 7 and 8. We're going to think about some New Testament ways that plays out. Why is it that one needs to be baptized? Why is it that that Peter would say that corresponds to this Old Testament event? Four reasons this morning. 
number one, both the flood and baptism show God's judgment for or of sin. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. Because as I said, sometimes we know the account of the flood. We talk about the size of the ark and how Noah built the ark and what it's made of and we make it a floating zoo and all those sorts of things. And if we're not careful, we can forget the reason why God sent the flood on the earth. In Genesis chapter 6, I want you to read verses 5 through 7 along with me. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. By the way, keep that little phrase, blot out, in your mind for something we'll talk about in a few minutes. But you think about what God says here and the events that lead to it. This is not, the flood was not some event that happened out of just some unwarranted anger. This was not an unprovoked event. As amazing as the flood was, this was not unprovoked. The flood was, yes, a result of God's wrath, but it was His wrath that was provoked. It was His wrath over the sinful thoughts of man. Did you notice it? Every thought or every intention of the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. Now you read some commentators and they'll suggest to you that's hyperbole. It's, it's, it's exaggerated speech because you know people have to think about eating and sleeping and those sorts of things. We understand that there were probably some thoughts that people were having that were not evil. But what the writer of Genesis, what Moses is trying to get across to us here in Genesis chapter 6 is that any time man was thinking, it's as if he was thinking about how can I do something that's against the will of God. It's all man could think about from morning to evening when he had his mind on what he wanted to do, on what man wanted to do. That's the situation. It's also amazing if you stop and think about it, that with that going on, God did not send the flood immediately. Have you ever thought about the fact that if God had so wanted to, He could have created Noah's ark right then and there? He could have just said, let there be an ark for Noah to float on, and there it would have been. Or He could have somehow given Noah some amazing ability to be able to build the ark in a few days or a few weeks. Instead, He gave Noah decades to complete this thing. And while the ark was being built, we're told in the New Testament that Noah spent his time proclaiming Something. We're not told what the sermon was, what the lesson was. We can speculate all we want, but for sure it had something to do with the coming judgment and evil and and something. But we're not told the outline of Noah's sermon. But it's decades between when God tells Noah to build the ark and when the waters begin to fall. But we need to remember why the waters fell. It was a clear sign of God's judgment on sin. And Peter says... Baptism corresponds to this. How does baptism correspond to that? We always need to remember that people still sin. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament make it clear that anyone who's of an accountable age has committed sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 in the Old Testament tells us, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You come to the New Testament. Romans 3 multiplied times tells us that. Probably the most two... Famous verses in that verse. Verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John chapter 1 reminds us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
So we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament that people still sin. Isaiah would teach us that sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Your sins have separated you from your God because God is holy. God is perfect. His holiness, part of His holiness I should say, is that He will punish sin. He cannot stand for sin to go unpunished forever. On the days when the waters began to fall, that was the day of reckoning for the wickedness in the days of Noah. There is a day of reckoning for sin even now. It may not be like it was in Noah's day. It may not be a flood or anything like that. It may not even be something in this life. There may be some way that someone gets all the way through this life without any real severe consequences for his or her sins. That's possible, I guess. But God will not let sin go unpunished forever. There is a day of reckoning. Think about the ways in which sin is described in Scripture or those who sin are described in Scripture. They're described as lost as opposed to saved. They're described, as we talked about last week, as being in darkness as opposed to being in light. They're described as being spiritually blind as opposed to being able to see spiritually. And even Ephesians 2 describes them as dead as opposed to alive. And one who chooses then to sin is also choosing to remain lost, to remain in darkness, to remain spiritually blind, to remain spiritually dead. They are choosing that, and they are choosing to remain in that state we put ourselves in because we choose those things. When someone is baptized, it is a wonderful time of rejoicing. But it's also a reminder of what would happen if they weren't. It's also a reminder for those who have never been baptized. That God will punish. God will judge sin. Listen to these couple of sentences from a commentator named Grudem as he was writing about this passage in First Peter. He said, The waters of baptism, excuse me, the water of baptism is like the waters of judgment, similar to the waters of the flood, and showing clearly what we deserve for our sins. Coming up out of the waters of baptism corresponds to being kept safe through the waters of the flood, the waters of God's judgment on sin, and emerging to live in newness of life. Both the flood and baptism show us God's judgment of sin. Number two, baptism is like the flood in that both are for those who accept the grace of God. The very first time you ever see the word grace found in Scripture is in the account of the flood. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 is one of those glimmer of hope passages. Right after God had said, I'm going to blot out mankind from the earth and all those things He lists, then you have that very well-known verse, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Do you not find that remarkable? That that's the context. For the very first time, we find the word grace in all of the Bible. Just let your mind dwell on that context for a moment. All the evil leading up to the flood. Just untold wickedness. And that's where you find the word grace. But there you see Noah finding grace in the eyes of God. That that Noah was a righteous person. But there's also a sense when you read through the account of the flood in which Noah was extended grace by God. He was given grace, if you will, by God. Where do I get that? I get that because... God told Noah how to build the ark. You think about what a feat this was to build what would be the largest vessel ever to go on water until the 1800s A.D. In a day when there were no computers, no cranes, no fancy tools, 
Noah put this thing together. And how would Noah have known what to build or how to build it? Unless God had said, choose this kind of wood, build it to these dimensions, make it so long, so deep, so high, make sure you put pitch inside and outside, make sure you build rooms, make sure you make three decks, make sure you put a door, make sure you make a window or an opening. How would Noah have known how to do that? And how would Noah have known what to put on the ark? Why am I building this great big thing? God's grace. God's grace is what allowed Noah to live through the ark. Through the flood on the ark, I should say. So was Noah saved by the grace of God? Oh, there's no doubt about it. But may I ask a follow-up question? Was Noah saved by grace alone? He still had to build it. He had to believe that the instructions that God gave were exactly what needed to be done to survive this unseen thing to come. You see, Noah was saved by the grace of God, but he had to accept that grace. If you, if you please, he had to pick up the hammer and start nailing some stuff together. He had to build the ark in order to survive through this particular event. And baptism corresponds to that. How would Peter say that baptism corresponds to that? Oh, there is absolutely no doubt that we are saved by the grace of God. Ephesians tells us that. Other places in the New Testament tell us that very clearly. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. We understand that. And baptism is a part of that grace of God. Why would I ever say that? Because so many in the religious world would say, No, you can't preach grace and baptism because baptism is a work. Have you ever thought about this? The plan of salvation that we teach, that the New Testament teaches, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, those things. Have you ever thought about the fact that baptism is the only one that's passive? It's the only one. And for some reason, it's the only one people want to argue about. Faith or belief is a work. Now, it's a mental work, but it's a work. Repentance is a work. It's a mental work and sometimes a physical work because I must change certain things. It's a work. Confession is work. It takes, it takes mental ability and the ability to speak or to sign or whatever it is that someone does to make that confession. So I believe, I repent, I confess, I am baptized. It's passive. I'm submitting my will to someone else, really to God, to save me through that act. So when God gives the plan of baptism, He is really saying, this is from my grace. Because it reminds you of what Jesus did on the cross and you're submitting to that will. Are we saved by the grace of God? Absolutely we are. And I'm thankful for it. But are we saved by grace alone? Oh, just as grace is called a gift in Ephesians chapter 2, you've gotten gifts before, but you had to accept them. Children wake up on Christmas Day and they see those presents under the tree. They don't go, well, there's the presents. I sure like them. No, they go get them. Because they understand to get the gift, you have to go get them. You have to receive them. It's the same way with the grace of God. To be saved through baptism, we must accept it through His grace. They are both from the grace of God. Number three, both the flood and baptism cleanse. The flood in the days of Noah cleanse the earth. Now that's a remarkable statement, but it's also a somewhat horrifying statement if you really stop and think about it. Only eight people 
survived of all the people on the earth. And just the animals that were on the ark, and I suppose the aquatic animals that were having a field day during this whole thing outside the ark. But, it, but all the, the land-living things, only eight people and the animals that were on the ark survived. By the way, because of how long people lived before the time of the flood, and then how many children they had because of those vast ages, there are some who suggest that the population of the world at the time of the flood could have been as many as a billion We're not talking about a couple of thousand people here on the face of the earth. Even if it's short of that, even if it's far short of that, just eight people survived the waters of the flood. Do we ever stop and think about that? I want to read to you something. I'm going to apologize for the length of it, but not for the contents of it. This is from a book called The Epic of God, written by one of my friends about Genesis. And in this paragraph, he describes how we often think about the flood And then he ends by talking about what it really was. He said, I have to admit that I adore the story of Noah's Ark as a little kid. In fact, my first sermon was on Noah's Ark. At the end of the message, I imitated my favorite preacher, my dad, by telling a joke. One day, Noah went out looking for his ark. He asked the lion, Lion, have you seen my ark? The lion said no. Noah asked the bear, Bear, have you seen my ark? The bear said no also. Finally, Noah came across a great big termite termite have you seen my ark and the termite said i can't believe i ate the whole thing some of you will get that at lunch all that aside i wonder if we by making noah's ark so popular with kids also confer on this narrative too much cuteness or innocence after all what we really have is a horror story in which human beings men women and children and innocent animals are swept away by merciless floodwaters. That's not a bad paragraph. I'm not saying all that to scare us away from Genesis chapter 6. I'm not saying all that to say we should never read the story or never tell it to children. I'm not saying that at all. But sometimes we make it such a cute story that we forget what's really going on here. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 7 The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Your translation, in fact, the King James, instead of the words blot out, uses the singular word destroy. May I tell you what that Hebrew word literally means? It's translated blot out, English standard. It's translated destroy, which is a little bit better, King James. The Hebrew word literally means obliterate. This is not God speaking out of kindness. This is a wrathful God saying, I am going to obliterate what I made after my own image and in my own likeness. The purpose of the flood was a cleansing from the gross levels of immorality to which mankind had sunk. And baptism corresponds to that? Oh yes, it does. When you and I sin, we are sinking to the same levels of depravity. We are sinking to the same levels of immorality. We are sinking to the same levels of sin. And thank God for baptism. That passage that Mike read for us a little while ago from 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Remember that Peter tells us because the word baptism means immersion or submersion, he goes ahead and says, we're not talking about a bath here, not the removal of filth from the flesh. The the English Standard Version has not the removal of dirt from the body. We're not talking about just going under the water and, and washing off our skin like we do in the bathtub. Then he says, instead, we're talking about it as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Why would he write that? Because the conscience is inward. Nothing miraculous takes place in the water. We talk about contacting the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism. We understand that's by faith. By faith, we're contacting the blood. The the water doesn't turn to blood or some, some odd thing like that. We are simply going under the water out of our faith in God that He will save us there. Something miraculous doesn't happen, but something amazing surely does. Because God somehow, through our obedient act in that faith, cleanses us within. He gives us a clear soul, a clear conscience. When one is baptized, his or her sins are washed away. Acts chapter 22. He or she is cleansed. They're made new. Just as the flood washed the earth and made it new in its wake, so God, through the connection of faith and works found in baptism, cleanses your soul of sin. Isaiah would describe it as white as snow and white like wool. Paul would describe it as becoming a new creation. All things, old things are passed away and all things are new. And number four, both the waters of the flood and baptism bring to safety. Nearing the end of the flood account in Genesis chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, we have this recorded. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird... Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Again, that's Genesis 8, 18 and 19. When those waters receded, God brought Noah and the others on board to a place of safety. We, we read the, the ark rested. I love that phrase. The ark rested on the mount or the mountains of Ararat. But also, since God had commanded Noah to take grain on the ark, they had what they needed to eat, to plant, to begin the process of life again. And we often tell our children that everything came on the ark two by two, but that's not true, is it? Some were two by two, and some were by sevens. Why? Because you had to have something to sacrifice and something to eat. God had provided everything that Noah needed, not just for this year-long journey. He provided everything he needed once things were safe, and once the flood was over, and once life began again on the earth. God provided everything Noah needed. It was a place of safety. Baptism corresponds to that. How is that true? It's true because it's only through the act of obedient faith of baptism that we are brought into the church, God's place of safety today. 3,000 people were added in Acts chapter 2. We, we know that. And Peter told them how to be added on that day. Repent to be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. But then that chapter ends in Acts 2 and verse 47 by telling us that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How were they saved? By doing the exact same thing Peter had said. Repent and be baptized. Their sins were washed away. What's the only thing that washes sins away? Baptism. So how's the only thing, what is, excuse me, the only thing through which God adds us to that place of safety? It's the act of obedient faith in baptism. The church is the place of the saved. It is the place of the liberated. It is God's place of safety. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that all spiritual blessings are found in Christ. How do we become in Christ? We're baptized into Him by contacting His blood. 
Is the church perfect? Well, the divine part is. And the human part is very close. Because we provide for each other a place of safety. We provide for each other a place of help, a place of encouragement, a place of comfort, a place of joy. And God provides through the church a place of forgiveness and a place of mercy and a place of grace and a place of love. And yes, at times, a place of discipline. In other words, God provides all we need to make it through this life and to enjoy the bliss of heaven in the next life. Only through that act can we join that place of safety, be part of that place of safety. You know, there are some who think that baptism is unessential. There are some who say it's just, just a tradition of some sort. Some would hear this lesson and, and think, you're just preaching some sort of Church of Christ thing. It's not necessary. Some say it's just an outward sign, it's just something you do outwardly because you've already been saved. May I ask a very pointed question? When God shut the door to the ark, did those on the outside of the ark think that Noah was just preaching some tradition anymore? Did those on the outside think Noah's message was just something he was making up? Just something unessential? Just some Noah thing? That's a frightening question. You and I all know people who know that story in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 and have never made the connection that Peter made. Baptism corresponds to this. There was one ark. There is one church. There was one ark. There is one way. There was one ark. There is one baptism question you and I must always answer is have you come to that place of safety? Through the waters of baptism have you allowed God to wash away your sins? Based upon your faith in Jesus Christ your turning from sin and repentance your confession of Jesus as Lord are you ready to submit your will to His? Let Him cleanse you, give you a new clean conscience, a clean soul And come to that place of safety, the church. Will you do that? Will you do it now as we stand and sing to encourage you?